Louis Armstrong always played with his eyes closed. It helped him wade back into the tide of memory, back to the steamy streets of New Orleans where he grew up. It helped him open that door deep in his soul and let the music flow out. It helped him block out those two gangsters standing right in front of the stage, staring up at him from the front row. It was a decade into the Prohibition era, and every jazz club worth playing was run by the mob. If they wanted to intimidate Armstrong, they'd have to do a lot more than stare. He kept his eyes shut and played on. But he could still hear them over the band, picking a fight with the other patrons. These weren't your run-of-the-mill shakedown artists. He peeped an eye open and took another look. No, he recognized these two toughs. They belonged to Dutch Schultz, one of the most powerful bootleggers in New York. If Dutch Schultz wanted to pull Louis Armstrong off the stage, he could come up there and do it himself. He pressed his eyes closed and kept blowing his horn. The fight kept going. Other gangsters and gamblers in the crowd were getting involved. One of Schultz's men grabbed a chair and smashed it over a woman's head. Pieces of wood flew all over. One chunk bounced off the edge of Armstrong's trumpet. These two weren't leaving without taking the whole club with them. Well, he thought to himself, the captain must go down with the ship. He just closed his eyes and kept on playing. Welcome to The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original. A show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind the cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This is our second episode exploring the dark side of the music industry. The business has, especially in the last century, been synonymous with some of the most sordid aspects of our society. From rampant drug use to the exploitative creation of pop stars to brutal violence and murder, the industry can be a volatile and dangerous environment. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. Today, we'll take a look at the world of jazz in the early to mid-20th century. We'll explore the lives of the legendary Louis Armstrong, record industry magnate Morris Levy, and the underworld figures who lurked behind them. Starting with the days of Prohibition, the jazz scene was controlled by bootleggers and mobsters who would do whatever it took to make sure their star musicians kept bringing in profits. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us.
From its origins at the turn of the 20th century, jazz was loose, sensuous, liberating, and unacceptable in polite society. In 1903, Pope Pius X forbade any bands from playing in Catholic churches, since the saxophone and drums, quote, directly offend the decorum and sanctity of the house of prayer. Communities across the U.S. passed laws to keep jazz out of the public dance halls. And since jazz had its roots in black music traditions, its primarily black artists weren't even allowed into most of the segregated, quote-unquote, respectable music venues. Shut out from public dances, concert halls, and Catholic churches, jazz music was forced underground. The only place it could thrive was in bars and brothels. If you had told a jazz musician in 1919 that their scene was about to become more taboo, they would have laughed. But at midnight on January 17, 1920, the Volstead Act went into effect. In every state of the Union, the sale, manufacture, or transport of alcohol was now illegal. Fifty-nine minutes later, the first prohibition-related arrest was made in Chicago. If selling booze was a crime, there was no shortage of Americans willing to become criminals. Liquor production was immediately taken over by bootleggers. Nightclubs were beholden to the gangs whose spirits kept them in business. City cops were bribed or threatened into submission. Within five years, there were over 100,000 speakeasies in New York City alone. The owners of these establishments needed low-profile talent for their in-house entertainment to avoid drawing too much attention to themselves. And their newly criminal customers needed music that was danceable, fresh, and a little bit dangerous. Jazz and prohibition went together like bathtub gin and lime juice. As soon as the masses were exposed to the new genre, it became a hit. In just a few years, jazz broke out of the underground and made its way onto the airwaves. Pretty soon, jazz acts had found their way into high-class venues, even the ones where the black musicians wouldn't be admitted as patrons. This was the New York that Louis Armstrong blew into in October 1924. The 23-year-old cornetist had already risen through the ranks in his native New Orleans. He was fresh off a two-year engagement at Lincoln Gardens in Chicago. It was time to take on the Big Apple. Armstrong was no naive young dreamer. He'd been playing for 13 years, and he'd seen quite a bit while doing it. He was born in New Orleans in 1901 to a teenage mother and absent father. When he was 11, he dropped out of school and joined a quartet with three of his friends, playing a beat-up old cornet for tips. He was self-taught. He couldn't read music. But there was no denying that the boy had talent. By the end of that same year, he was arrested for borrowing his stepfather's revolver and firing six blanks into the air during a New Year's Eve parade. This landed him an indefinite sentence in a youth detention center called the Colored Waif's Home. He slept on a bare slab of wood and ate bread and molasses for most of his meals. The only bright spot? the center had a music program. Armstrong started out on the tambourine. 
he was eventually promoted to his instrument of choice, the cornet. In time, he became the band's leader. When he was released a year and a half later, the 13-year-old was ready to take New Orleans by storm. And that's exactly what he did. Over the next decade, he became one of the most renowned cornetists in his hometown. At 22, he followed the exodus of New Orleans jazz players heading to Chicago. Most of the clubs there were black and tans. They allowed black and white patrons, though the two groups were often seated on separate sides. After a two-year stint in Chicago, Armstrong was invited to New York to join the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra, the best band of black musicians in the country. Fletcher Henderson was a polished, reserved young man of 26. He was already one of the most influential music arrangers in the jazz world, and he liked every note of those arrangements to be played to the T. The orchestra was full of serious, sophisticated musicians. Armstrong's only real training was his year and a half in the Waif's home. He couldn't make heads or tails of the sheet music he was given. His thing was improvisation, playing by ear, turning every piece into a solo, to put it bluntly. He switched from the cornet to the trumpet to blend the sound in better with the rest of his section, but this could only help so much. During the first rehearsal, the band was given a medley of mellow Irish waltzes. Armstrong followed along well enough until the rest of the musicians hushed down to a quiet murmur, and the trumpet kept blaring over them at full volume. Henderson had to stop the band to teach Armstrong that the little PP marking on the chart stood for play quietly. He replied, oh, I thought that meant pound plenty. Jokes aside, Armstrong didn't really take to the orchestra's structured style. Music notations were confusing, unnecessary, and just no fun. So on opening night at the prestigious Roseland Ballroom, he said, screw it. Halfway through the piece, he decided to ignore those pesky little peas and play as loud and fast as he wanted. And the audience ate it up. He was so loud, they could hear him out on the street. A crowd of passersby stopped at the door to listen in. This was like nothing the upper-class white audience had ever heard before. Hell, the rest of the band hadn't heard anything like it either. And they weren't necessarily happy about it. They couldn't match his pace. He kept playing faster and faster, louder and louder. Henderson could barely keep the band together. But the audience had all stopped dancing to stand around and watch Armstrong. He blared on that horn, closing his eyes, improvising riffs, jumping around the stage like it was his. The next night, the Roseland Ballroom was completely sold out. Louis Armstrong had officially arrived. The only thing holding him back was Henderson. The band leader would only tolerate his antics so far. A short solo here, a bit of singing there, and only when the other musicians had been warned about it ahead of time. This was the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra, not the Louis Armstrong Band. If he wanted to make up his own arrangements, he could do it on his own. So he did. After a year with the orchestra, he went back to Chicago 
and formed Louis Armstrong and his Hot Five. Armstrong on trumpet played the melody, the clarinet and trombone improvised off him, and the guitar and piano marked the rhythm. These jam sessions were fueled by marijuana, which at the time was both safer and cheaper than bootleg alcohol. The group recorded some of Armstrong's biggest hits, including Potato Head Blues and Heebie Jeebies. But the true peak came in the fall of 1928, when Fletcher Henderson passed through Chicago and asked Armstrong if he'd consider rejoining his orchestra. He declined. But he was willing to go back to New York for the right gig. In June of 1929, the Hot Five's recording director, Tommy Rockwell, found Armstrong a job at a top club in Harlem, Connie's Inn. Armstrong's disrespect for authority wouldn't fly at his next gig. Connie's Inn was owned by one of the most notorious gangsters in New York City. Coming up, Louis Armstrong gets his first taste of the Harlem underworld. Now back to the story. A few years into Prohibition, jazz was finding its way into mainstream ballrooms, theaters, and radio stations. But the heart of the scene was still where it began, in the nightlife. The best-known club in New York City was the Cotton Club, which opened its doors in 1923. The surreally racist decor was done up like an antebellum plantation, complete with a cotton field backdrop and a white-columned mansion facade over the bandstand. All the performers were black, and all the patrons were white. The club's band was led by Duke Ellington, who made the best of his mandate to compose, quote-unquote, jungle music for the rowdy white audience. If he felt conflicted about his role in this racist charade, he didn't say anything about it to the boss because the Cotton Club belonged to Oni the Killer Madden, one of the most powerful bootleggers in America. As the nickname suggests, Madden was not someone who took no for an answer. Right before he opened the Cotton Club, he'd spent nine years in Sing Sing prison for killing a major Irish mob leader. Now that Prohibition was in full swing, He owned 20 nightclubs and a brewery that manufactured 800,000 kegs of Madden's number one beer every year. Just a few blocks away from the Cotton Club was a basement bar called Connie's Inn. Connie's was less showy, less cartoonish. It was a slightly more genuine version of Harlem nightlife, just gritty and dangerous enough to appeal to the wealthy white, quote-unquote, slummers. And once the downtown socialites tapped out for the night, black patrons were allowed in to mingle with the after-hours crowd. The eponymous Connie, a.k.a. Conrad Innerman, was actually a front for bootlegger Dutch Schultz. Schultz had made a name for himself by kidnapping the leading bootlegger in the Bronx, hanging him up by a meat hook, and covering his eyes with a gonorrhea-infected bandage so he would slowly go blind even after his family paid the ransom to release him. After that incident, no one felt compelled to stand in Schultz's way. When Louis Armstrong took a gig at Connie's in June of 1929, he may not have realized he was walking into the middle of a gang war. He was swept up in the excitement of it, playing in one of the hottest clubs in the hottest neighborhood in America, 
Every night, the 500-seat basement ballroom was packed with actresses, authors, critics, all kinds of big spenders. Performing there was so alluring, the gunmen at the door and the gangsters lining the edges of the room barely caught his attention. But Armstrong did catch the attention of society both high and low. Pretty soon, he wasn't just a big name in the jazz scene, he was a mainstream celebrity. Later that June, Armstrong made his Broadway debut, directing the Pitt Orchestra for the musical review Hot Chocolates. His trumpet solo in the song Ain't Misbehavin' was so explosive, he was asked to play it on stage with the actors instead of down in the pit. One of his most devoted fans was the true owner of Connie's Inn. At the end of a show late one night, Armstrong noticed Dutch Schultz sitting at the bar. The gangster himself wanted an introduction. As a testament to the boss's fearsome reputation, when the two men shook hands, it was Armstrong who told Schultz, we see your picture in the Daily News all the time. Soon, the tables would be reversed. By the fall of 1929, the 28-year-old Armstrong was at the pinnacle of success. As long as jazz kept prospering, he had a long and beautiful career ahead of him. And then, on October 29th, the stock market collapsed. Almost overnight, the Roaring Twenties were over. Hard times fell on everyone. Overpriced black market booze was no longer flying off the shelves. Only the richest of the rich could pay the cover fee at high-end nightclubs. With opportunities drying up on the East Coast, Armstrong headed out to Los Angeles in the spring of 1930. As it turned out, his recordings had made their way to California, and the white folks in Hollywood already loved him. Nothing could slow him down, not even an arrest for marijuana possession in early 1931. When Armstrong walked into the courtroom, he found a chaotic scene of lawyers and journalists and men in fancy suits who all claimed to be his manager. One of them introduced himself as Johnny Collins. He claimed he was a fixer who'd been sent by Armstrong's real manager, Tommy Rockwell, to clean up the legal mess. Collins got the job done, and by evening, Armstrong was back on stage as if the arrest had never happened. As payment, Collins only asked to be taken on as Armstrong's new manager. This seemed a little off, since Tommy Rockwell was the one who'd sent Collins down there in the first place. But the trumpeter didn't give it too much thought. He figured the two of them had an agreement worked out, and he had nothing to gain by prying into it. Especially since Collins was proving to be a top-notch manager. By August, he had found Armstrong a great gig in Chicago— at a club called The Showboat. But what seemed like a golden opportunity would turn out to be a massive mistake. The Showboat doubled as a bookkeeping joint, so it was swarming with gangsters and gamblers all day and night. From the moment Armstrong walked in, he was hounded by lowlives shaking him down for money. Luckily, the house banjo player packed a 45, both to ward off hoodlums and to keep the rest of the band in line. But after a few nights at the showboat, 
Armstrong started to recognize some familiar faces in the crowd. And these ones wouldn't be scared off by a pistol-wielding banjo player. As it turned out, Johnny Collins wasn't entirely on the up-and-up. Out in New York, Tommy Rockwell was furious that his own fixer had stolen his client. And Tommy Rockwell had close ties to Dutch Schultz, who also wanted his star trumpeter back. Profits at Connie's Inn had taken a nosedive since Armstrong left, and he was beginning to realize that letting him go was a serious business mistake. So, once word got out that Armstrong was in Chicago, Schultz sent a few guys over there to set things straight. Not long into his engagement at the showboat, Armstrong looked out into the audience to see two New York gangsters in the front row staring right at him. He just closed his eyes and kept playing. When they started picking a fight, smashing furniture over the heads of innocent bystanders, Armstrong realized he might be in real trouble. But he'd seen enough in his 30 years. He wouldn't be run off the bandstand so easily. He kept on ignoring them until the fight was broken up. The next night, Armstrong was on stage when he felt a light tap on his shoulder. Without missing a beat, he glanced back to see a big, burly thug standing right behind him. The man whispered in his ear, Someone wants to talk to you in the dressing room. This still could not compel him to stop the performance. But as soon as the set was over, he sprinted back to the dressing room to see what was going on. There was a man sitting in the dark with a pistol in his hand. He introduced himself as Frankie Foster. Armstrong knew that name. He was a notorious trigger man for Al Capone. But tonight, it looked like he was there on someone else's orders. Frankie looked him in the eye and said, You're going to New York to work at Connie's Inn, and you're leaving tomorrow morning. Armstrong looked at the gun. He looked at Frankie. There was only one way to survive this one. He said, Well, maybe I do open in New York tomorrow. Frankie led him out to the phone booth, pressing the gun against his back. There was already someone on the other line, Connie himself. The first words he said were, When are you going to open here? Armstrong turned his head around to look at Frankie. He replied, Tomorrow morning. As soon as he was out of Frankie's sight, Armstrong ran. He boarded a train in the dead of night and eventually surfaced in Louisville, Kentucky. If he laid low for a while, maybe this would all blow over. Johnny Collins tried to send him on a cross-country tour to avoid the heat in Chicago and New York, but every city he landed in, the mobsters found him. By the middle of 1932, he up and fled the country. It was high time for Louis Armstrong's European tour. Europe was a massive success. Jazz was just starting to make its way across the pond, and he received a superstar's welcome in London, Copenhagen, Stockholm, and Paris. He played for the Prince of Wales. Racism wasn't nearly as violent in most of Europe as it was in the States, and organized crime wasn't as powerful either. For the first time, he was treated like a performer. 
not a colored performer. Best of all, no one ever tried to hold him at gunpoint. For two years, Armstrong took Europe by storm. He dropped both Johnny Collins and Tommy Rockwell, and it looked like the mob days were behind him. But the constant touring and performing was tiring. Playing trumpet isn't easy on the mouth. By 1934, he had to cancel a string of engagements in France because his lips were so chapped and sore, they bled when he tried to play. Meanwhile, back in America, the jazz age was winding down. In May of 1932, Al Capone was sent to prison for tax evasion. Without his patronage, the Chicago jazz scene dried up. In 33, prohibition was repealed. In 35, Oni the Killer Madden fled to Hot Springs, Arkansas to escape murder charges. That same year, Dutch Schultz was shot to death in a restaurant bathroom. When the 34-year-old Louis Armstrong returned to Chicago in 1935, it was an entirely different city from the one he'd fled four years earlier. But the two biggest problems hadn't changed. America was still racist, and criminals controlled everything. His former conman of a manager, Johnny Collins, wasn't happy about being suddenly dropped when his client took off for Europe. In revenge, he made it his mission to block Armstrong from any venues in New York. To make matters worse, Armstrong was hit with a breach of contract suit for his canceled performances in France. And Tommy Rockwell and all the mobsters in his employ were still out there somewhere, ready to draw blood. To keep trouble off his tail, Armstrong needed a strong arm. So in the summer of 1935, he hired a new manager, Joe Glazer. Back in the mid-20s, Glazer had managed the Sunset Cafe in Chicago, which was owned by Al Capone. Capone was out of the picture now, but Glazer still had close connections to his successors. He was known to introduce himself by saying, you don't know me, but you know two things about me. I have a terrible temper and I always keep my word. Glazer was also a convicted child rapist, but this did nothing to sully his reputation within the music world. This tough guy image was exactly what drew Armstrong to Glazer. After years of being pushed around by mobsters, he needed someone on the same level who would go to bat for him. With Glazer handling the business, gangster to gangster, he was free to focus on his music. He went on the road while his new manager sorted through the legal muck. Glazer paid off Johnny Collins for the right to take over Armstrong's contract. As far as old Tommy Rockwell was concerned, he and Glazer already knew each other. It only took a few small favors to smooth things over. By October, Glazer had landed Armstrong another gig at Connie's Inn. But the lip problems Armstrong had developed in Europe persisted, and the stress of constant performing wore him out. Instead, he turned his focus to singing and film performances. By 1937, he landed a role in the Paramount comedy film Artists and Models. He only appeared in one scene, playing his horn in a sharp suit, while the actress Martha Ray danced and sang in a tight satin dress. The problem? Martha Ray was white. 
It was unheard of for a black performer to share the screen with a white woman, especially in such a provocative number. The backlash was immediate. A collective letter from the city officials of Atlanta warned that, quote, for a white woman to act with Negroes is a most certain offense to the South. Variety's review put it succinctly, quote, the intermingling of the races isn't wise. This disaster set an industry-wide precedent. Black musicians could not, under any circumstances, perform musical numbers with the rest of the white cast. It had to be perfectly clear that their race made them inferior to their co-stars, even if the musician in question was a crowd-pleaser like Louis Armstrong. The next year, Armstrong was cast as a stable hand in the musical comedy Going Places. Even in the small, stereotypical role, he stole the show. One of the songs he performed, Jeepers Creepers, earned an Academy Award nomination. As the 1940s dawned, Armstrong and Glazer solidified their hold over the jazz industry by forming their own agency, Associated Booking Corporation. Over the years, ABC would represent Duke Ellington, Barbara Streisand, B.B. King, and more. But just as Armstrong was hitting his stride, the cultural winds shifted again. The Great Depression was long over. World War II had begun. And like the rest of the nation, jazz was moving in a new direction. We'll look at the next era of jazz right after this. Now back to the story. In the early 1940s, the traditional jazz and swing of Louis Armstrong's generation gave way to a new style called bebop. Armstrong had pioneered the use of improvisation on the melody of a song, while the general harmonies and chord progressions stayed the same. Young bebop players like Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker were improvising on everything, weaving in and out of the conventional chord structure, accenting the offbeats of the rhythm, long, intricate solos that only vaguely resembled a melody. Thus, bebop was a lot more musically complex and a lot harder to dance to. From the start, the genre had absolutely no commercial potential. And it wasn't meant to. It was musicians' music, played among friends for the sheer fun of it. But against all odds, the style caught on. It was exciting, innovative, fresh. Everything that jazz had ceased to be. Not everyone got on board. Armstrong, for one, thought the new style was ridiculous. He was once quoted as saying, when they tear out from the first note and you ask yourself, what the hell's he playing? That's not for me. But among the younger set, bebop was a phenomenon. The only problem was, by the late 40s, swing music had moved into big ballrooms and Broadway theaters, and most of New York's jazz clubs had closed their doors. The new generation needed their own answer to the Connie's Inn of yesteryear, and they needed someone to run it. Enter Morris Levy. Morris had grown up in Harlem in the 20s and 30s, right in the heart of the jazz scene. When he was 13, he dropped out of school after a violent altercation with his 75-year-old homeroom teacher. He soon found work as a checkroom boy at a nightclub. Most of the city's clubs were still owned by the mob, 
By the 40s, New York's crime was solidly controlled by the Italian mafia. The specifics are unclear, but it's believed that Levy was working for the Genovese family, one of the five families of the mafia that ran New York City. They really did run most of the city. The Genovese family had a hold on gambling, drugs, loan sharking, garbage collection, labor unions, the concrete industry, the fish markets, and more. It was an entirely different ballgame from the small, disorganized gangs of bootleggers who dominated the Prohibition era. Since Morris Levy was Sephardic Jewish, not Italian, he had no chance of actually joining the Mafia. But the teenager worked his way through the ranks as far as he could, from coat check to photo darkroom to waitstaff. By the late 1940s, he was put in charge of managing a chicken shack on Broadway called Topsy's Chicken Roost. On the top floor of the chicken roost was a small jazz club called the Cock Lounge. This was right around the time of the bebop explosion. In early 1948, the Cock Lounge began running a weekly bebop show on Monday night. It was so popular, they expanded it to two nights, then three, then eventually seven. By 1949, the three founding partners of the Cock Lounge decided to move to a bigger venue, which they called Bop City. Meanwhile, 22-year-old Morris Levy, along with his 26-year-old brother, Irving, opened up their own place right down the street called Birdland. It was named for the wildly popular saxophonist and bebop pioneer Charlie Parker, nicknamed Yardbird. The 500-seat venue had a long bar, rows of tables, a bandstand big enough for a full orchestra, and a neon sign out front that read, Birdland, Jazz Corner of the World. One of its biggest draws was that, unlike many clubs at the time, Birdland wasn't segregated. Levy knew the club's namesake since Charlie Parker had been a frequent performer at the Cock Lounge. Levy worked his connections to get Parker in the lineup for the opening night in December 1949. But getting the bird back for another performance turned out to be difficult. In fact, the Levies had a hard time booking anyone. Every time they reached out to a performer's agent, they would come back and say their client was already booked at Bop City that night. Eventually, Morris got the feeling his old partners were swiping up his acts just to spite him. So he had an idea. He reached out to one of the big booking agencies and said, You've got a band we want, Amos Milburn and his Chicken Shackers. This, in fact, was not a band anyone wanted. They played barn dances, not jazz. But as expected, the agents got back to him and said that Amos Milburn already had an engagement at Bop City. When the night came, the patrons at Bop City were treated to a bizarrely unexpected set from the chicken shackers. And just down the street, Birdland had booked Charlie Parker. From then on, Birdland was the hub for bebop. It was a place for music lovers from all walks of life. Black, white, rich, poor, celebrities, musicians. There was even a fenced-in drink-free zone for teenage customers. On Monday nights, they held jam sessions for any musicians who wanted to come. Amateur and old pros alike would play until sunrise. 
just for the joy of it. But the music business was still a business. At some point in the early 50s, Birdland received a visit from ASCAP, the organization that monitors music licensing. As Morris Levy was about to learn, every time a song is performed live, the songwriter is owed a licensing fee. Quite a bit of copyrighted music had been performed at Birdland, and it was time for Levy to pay up. At first, Levy thought this was a shakedown. He tried to throw the representative out, but he came back, this time threatening to sue. Levy talked to his lawyer, who explained the copyright laws, and Levy immediately realized he'd gotten into the wrong business. Why collect ticket fees from one performance each night when you can collect royalties from a hundred? Not long after he walked out of his lawyer's office, Levy opened a music publishing company called Patricia Music. The first song he copyrighted was Lullaby of Birdland, which was written specifically for the club in 1952 by British composer George Shearing. Over the years, Lullaby of Birdland became a jazz standard covered by everyone from Ella Fitzgerald to Amy Winehouse to the Muppets. And with every performance, every record sale, every radio airplay, the publishing fees were sent back to Morris Levy. Within the next few years, Levy bought several more nightclubs and restaurants with the help of a few partners from the Mafia. By 1956, he added a record label to his roster, Roulette Records. He signed some of Birdland's frequent performers to the label, and just like that, his control was solidified. He owned the artists who wrote the music, he owned the rights to their songs, and he owned the venues they performed at. He also had a habit of adding his own name to the writing credits of songs he had nothing to do with creating. Thus, he owned the composer's rights, too. Levy could use his mob connections to threaten radio DJs into playing tracks from roulette artists. The airplay served as free advertising to drive up record sales. The hit albums drummed up publicity for the artists' concerts at Birdland. And whether the music was played live, on a record, or on the radio, the royalties wound up in Levy's pocket. A portion of the money was supposed to go back to the performers, but those payments almost never materialized. Tommy James, whose hits Hanky Panky and I Think We're Alone Now were released by Roulette, estimated that Levy owed his band 30 to $40 million in unpaid royalties. Any complaints were kept in check by the Genovese family toughs, who used Roulette as a front for their less legal enterprises. Producer Bob Thiel recalled, The miasmal hoodlum atmosphere at Roulette Records was so heavily oppressive that it was often difficult for me to concentrate on the musical matters. Every day I felt I was trapped in a grade B gangster epic. It wasn't unusual for Levy to grab his baseball bat and storm out of the office in the middle of the afternoon yelling to his secretary, Karen, call my lawyer. But as Tommy James also testified, Roulette could keep artists around by offering near-complete artistic freedom. At any other record label, there would be executives breathing down their necks, engineering every note to be as mass-appealing and profitable as possible. 
But Levy was running a transparent racket. He owned every step in the musical process. He made money off of making money. He settled every problem with a dispatch of armed enforcers. It didn't matter to him what the song sounded like. He'd make a fortune regardless. Music and crime were, as always, the perfect fit. The mob was looking for industries they could strong-arm, loopholes they could jump rope through, and dupes they could exploit. Musicians tended to forget about money and legality as long as they were given a big, bright stage where they could do whatever they wanted. Levy's ruthless methods didn't turn off patrons either. Customers kept flocking to Birdland, which had made itself synonymous with bebop. A-list stars from Marilyn Monroe to Judy Garland were regular guests. But the club's more unsavory elements were still there, beneath the glitzy surface. During a show one night in January 1959, Birdland's co-owner, Irving Levy, was stabbed to death while tending the bar. The place was so roaring, none of the patrons even noticed. The perpetrator was soon arrested. Officially, he was a former convict who'd stabbed him in the midst of a petty argument. But rumors swirled through the underworld that the killer was a mafia hitman who'd mistaken Irving for his brother. Morris was shaken by his brother's death, whether he believed the gossip or not. But the show must go on. The 31-year-old Morris took over Irving's role in running the club, and business continued as usual. Because of Birdland's popularity, the relatively small Roulette Records was able to attract some of the biggest names in jazz. From 1958 to 1968, the label produced its Birdland series, featuring LPs from the likes of John Coltrane and Tony Bennett. In April of 1961, two underworlds collided when Joe Glazer arranged for Louis Armstrong to record an album with Roulette Records. For the first and last time in Armstrong's career, he would be recording with Duke Ellington. Over a two-day session, the two old legends recorded 17 jazz classics together. The tracks were released in two separate albums, bizarrely titled Together for the First Time and The Great Reunion. Considering the number of gangsters hanging around Roulette, it must have been a hard-won reunion when they both made it back into the studio the second day. Armstrong and Ellington both gave strong performances, but it was undeniable that they'd entered the sunset of their careers. Both were hovering around 60, living relics of a time gone by. The years hadn't been without success. Over the past two decades, the company Armstrong and Glazer had founded, Associated Booking Corporation, had become the third largest music agency in the country. But a quiet retirement and a business fortune were not in the cards for the aging musician. Joe Glazer, as everyone knew, had close ties to the Chicago mob. Those connections got him pretty far, but he was definitely not the only person in music who had muscle behind his name. In 1962, Glazer ran afoul of the man the FBI dubbed the most powerful lawyer in the world, Sidney Korshak. Just like Glazer, 
Korshak's relationship with the Chicago mob went all the way back to Capone. Beyond his work as a mob lawyer, he counted MGM, MCA, Hilton Hotels, and Jimmy Hoffa among his clients. In 1952, he blackmailed Senator Estes Kefauver into keeping Chicago out of his organized crime investigation, and it worked. So when Korshak asked Joe Glazer to sign over legal control of Associated Booking and all its artists, he didn't try to argue. Louis Armstrong didn't know a thing about this for years. It was done quietly, without any change in the day-to-day of the business. Armstrong still assumed that half the company belonged to him. The charade lasted until 1969, when Glazer died from a stroke. Upon his death, full control of Associated Booking Corporation went to Sidney Korshak. Armstrong learned the lesson too late. Once a con, always a con. He himself died of heart problems two years later at the age of 71. Despite being robbed blind by his lifelong manager, Armstrong left behind an estate valued at over $530,000, worth over $3.3 million today. Joe Glazer, for the record, died with an estate worth seven times that much. But for Louis Armstrong, it was never about the money. It was about the music. He died as one of the most influential jazz figures of all time. He outlived Birdland, which closed its doors in 1965. Morris Levy hadn't fallen from power, not by a long shot. But jazz was on its way out. There were new genres on the horizon, new artists for Levy to exploit, corrupt, and control. Levy would continue his scams for the next two decades. In the 70s, he sued John Lennon for allegedly stealing a line from a Chuck Berry song he owned the rights to. For a while, he owned the copyright to the phrase rock and roll. In 1988, he was finally convicted of extortion and sentenced to 10 years behind bars. He died of cancer just weeks before he could report to prison. The landscape of American music was forever shaped by the jazz age, both the good and the bad. The next generation would smooth out the frantic rhythms of bebop and settle into the soft, cool blues of R&B. But beneath the pristine surface, there were still untold depths of darkness. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, we'll continue our exploration of the dark side of music with Jackie Wilson. You can find all of ParCast shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskind, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. This episode was written by Kate Gallagher 
and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner.